You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Welcome to this Sydney Environment Institute event, co-presented with Sydney Ideas uh, in collaboration with Food Waste Fighter, the Food Waste Fighters Society. I'm Christine Winter, and despite the grey hair and the wrinkles, I'm a newly minted PhD from the... Uh, <laughs> from the uh, D- uh, Department of Government and International Relations and attached to the Sydney Environment Institute. And if you hadn't worked it out already, I'm a settler here in Australia. My heritage is Anglo, Celtic and Ngāti Kahanunu. I'm from across the ditch, so kia to you all. And it's a very great honour for me to be asked to chair the Indigenous Sustainability Practices and Processes evening here on Mid-Reconciliation Week in a very cold and chilly evening. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for dodging between the hail to get here. So I come back to my status as a settler, and I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nations, custodians and trustees of this land for something in the order in the order of 2,500 generations. So I'll let that sink in. I'm a first-generation settler here. On my Ngāti Kahanunu side, I can trace back maybe 40 generations in New Zealand. That's probably pushing it. We're talking about the Gadigal people caring for this land, managing its sustainability for something in the order of 2,500 generations a long history of sustainable practice. So in doing this, I'm also acknowledging the knowledge, the law, the political systems, the protocols, the culture, the arts and the humanities of the Gadigal people, the the Eora nation and all the nations of this continent. I pay my respects to their elders past and present, those custodians of the knowledge of law of culture, of arts, and I'm watching in awe at the strong, feisty new leaders within this community, young leaders who are not for turning. I note that this land, the land on which the university is built, has been a meeting place and a place of learning and a place of celebration for all known time. Tonight, as we consider how to reconfigure our thinking and our practices in a time when growing demand for food and a disregard for food wastage and general environmental degradation is exhausting country and laying it waste. For all time, country has sustained the First Nations people of this continent. The foods of this continent have been nurtured, protected, harvested and prepared, and the people, the animals, the fish, the birds, the soils, the water and the forests have flourished. So it's really a very great honour for us to have David King here with us, who is someone steeped in these custodial practices. So the evening will be structured like this. We have a keynote presentation from David King, a Gundungara Aboriginal elder and the inspirational leader of the Bush Care Group and Community. He'll be followed by two respondents, Dr Margaret Raven, a postdoctoral fellow from Macquarie University, and Cressida Ridgey, a PhD candidate from the University of Sydney here. And this will be followed by a round table discussion with the panel. After that, we'll open up to questions from the floor. And as always with these evenings, we'll finish promptly. I think it's 6.30. So let me introduce to you first David King. He's the son of Auntie Mary King, a Gundungara woman born in the Gully in Katoomba, and an English father from Yorkshire. That sounds like a feisty combination in itself. Okay. He grew up disconnected from his mother's country, but with a sense of being drawn 
to the Blue Mountains from where his mother's family came. And so he moved there permanently in 1999, and in 2001 he started bush care activities and continued with Clean Up Australia. From then to now, he's seen the restoration of country and the methodologies increase on his home country with his people. He's been honoured with a Hard Yakka Award, a Bush Care Morning Tea Award, a Bush Care Legend Award, and a Blue Mountains NIDOC Person of the Year Award. And the groups with which he works have also received awards. So it is a great honour for us to have David down from the mountains back to Sydney and to Gadigal country. David. Sometimes draw the line at a totem or a moiety and say, well, as long as there's a 
and you're about, everything's good. It, it, it goes deeper than that. And I, and I hope we start our thinking from my cultural practices and ways, which, you know, I'm a bit biased, I've got to admit, a thousand years is a bit longer than a couple hundred, so I think I'm doing okay years-wise. I look after everything in your weeks. I look after its pathways. So that's the processes that I try to put in into my land care, swamp care and bush care, is we don't isolate, we look for pathways. I work this piece of country, so when I get out into the valleys, the, the, the rubbish and the leftovers do not wash down there. I try and look for practices that actually ensure everything survives. Now, they said, um, yeah, I do do land care and swamp care, and we got this Academy Award last year thing. See this big, I don't know if you use it for, but big flash. <laughs> um, and I spelled that name wrong. But, um, <laughs> language is a hard thing, isn't it? Um, so I logged down last year, I pulled weeds, and I, I, I look at country. I, I sat with an uncle who used to look across like all you people, and if you're all sort of like a good Oriades or a snow gum, he'd look up and go, there's something wrong with that one up there. And as a kid, I'd go, no, man, they're all the same trees. This looks like another one. And Uncle Harold would walk up there, and he'd find lost people. They recorded him. He was a tracker. He tracked two fellas through that valley for seven days for the local police in Katoomba and found them. He scared me. Who's this guy? Don't know how he's like that. He fills the charcoal, he fills the plants, he just finds people out in solitary, he just wanders about and gets them. Thanks to him, but sit on country, we look at where the water runs, we look at the soil, we look at the plants, we look at the impacts, we follow the scats, we follow the tracks. So last year we won the State Award for Land Care. So we're currently the Indigenous Land Management people for New South Wales and we go to nationals in October. I don't say that as a proud thing, but I say that because we use our practices to try and sustain country. My mum, that's her there. Passed away about two years ago, and the funny thing is, I, I try and talk to people that run in the bush to talk about going to the toilet, hence the toilet roll. Because what comes out of them is just as important what goes into them. <laughs> talked to a bunch of kids the other day, so I went to dinner, they said Mexican. I said, See, Mexico shouldn't be in my soil. My mum was a great woman. She wore the possum skin hat. She was born on Gadaka country, which is a lot of birds. And that's where my group is, the Gadaka Swamp Air. I say mine, I'm a part of a community. I'm a custodian. I don't own it, I belong there. She was born there in 1926. She was removed as an eight-year-old because she was a half-caste. Um, a lot of Aboriginal people don't like that word, but that was the reason why. I have a Scottish grandmother and a Gadaka grandfather. She loved country. She always had a picture of Namadira's um, art on the kitchen sink because she was removed and couldn't connect back until the, until the later years of her life. But she always had that passion and took me up there as a kid. Hence, I got to walk on it. So I pay respect to her. That's the brother she met in the 80s, Len, the fellow here. He used to buy her shoes. And the bloke up the back was Uncle Harold. He's the one that scared me. He's the one who taught me the practices, but he also taught me the parameters on how to eat on country. What to eat, when to eat, and why we ate certain things and why we didn't. Parameters on our food usage is a key thing. We live in a society where we just mass produce, mass use, and then mass waste. Uncle Harold said, you see that man version for Mosa, that mountain devil. We like the nectar on that. If there's not at least half a dozen plants in full flower, you leave it, you walk on. You come back maybe next year. If there's half a dozen plants, you then partake, but you don't take them all. You take it off a few plants. You use it, and then you move on. And it's a concept I think we've lost in this country, that we just seem to go through that. Burrowgrain, my clan country, Burra, is the kangaroo. Burra go around means burra cross the river, kangaroo cross the river. When your kangaroo crosses the river, it means the food's ready. We don't cross the river until the food's ready. 
We just don't go there and produce something because we can. We wait until the land's ready. We go through that process. So Uncle Harold taught me a lot of those processes. Thank you. Gargaroo Swamp Care. So this is the one that I indirectly started. He has an Aboriginal man. Um, I know I'm old, but I'm elder here, technically, eh? I'm just always in here, but I'll get a grey hair and elder. But um, the aunt and poor aunt was bestowed on me yet. I, I do get to do the processes because of their permission. Aunty Sharon Winkman says, when your mum was born, they've given the land back. You've got 90 hectares, can you start managing it? And thank you to people like Uncle Harold, who spent time, we started to look at the way we wanted to use the land, and we've been allowed to do that. I'm a great believer in bush tucker. I love bush tucker. I make this thing called the swamp hair chai. I actually thought this would be a nice little group of chai, but it's pretty big, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is a chai in that glass of intel, so I can't steal it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we sat there. So we sat there and then we started to plant the tucker. And then we got the willows because it, in Aboriginal culture, everything's of use. So people look at willows and go, well, they're a destructive force, correct? But how can we use them? I was taught culturally that everything you have on this earth, you use it properly. So when we took the willows out, we dried them and then we used them to protect the swamp. And then the swamp's coming back, which means our crayfish are coming back, which means our galaxies are coming back. Tucker that my mum used to catch and eat. So then we looked at things like African mudgrass, and we thought, well, we take that to the tip and let's create landfill, let's just make more wastage. And we thought, hang on, there's got to be a way of using this. So we got the love grass, we drive it out, we sew it up, and we use it like coil logs. So it stops the water flow, it holds the soil, and we grow the bush tucker. So processes culturally were that nothing was to be wasted. There was a purpose for it. Even if it came from some random other land, we could use it. So I started to put that into practice. Hence, I think, why a guy who pulls weeds and makes a cup of tea gets his Academy Awards, because I think we're looking at it culturally. So then with the food, with the parameters, Michael taught me, is things like meat. Now, I'm... I don't know, I've got all labels. So that label me is a left or a right. Um, two ten-year-olds told me I was a vegan the other day. <laughs> vegetarian. Just because I don't eat bread, sweets, and something else. Still got kids. You're a vegetarian. Vegetarian. I don't eat the meat stuff. Oh, a bit of everything I am. So don't label me. But we were taught in our parameters of usage of meat. He never took the bull kangaroo. That fellow had a purpose. He had to protect. If you took him out, you put the rest of the group of kangaroos at risk. Never take the females, the breeding females. Because then when you come back in a few years, how are you going to eat if you take out your females? So, unless there's probably a few high schoolers in here, because I had a high school group on Monday, I said, them teenagers, which really haven't fulfilled their purpose yet. Parameters on your food. Again, so yeah, never worked a lot of high school that line, does it? <laughs> so, that were the parameters that you looked at what you were going to take. And again, comes that whole purpose as as you eat off your land, you see where it's at. Uncle Harold used to burn the land to bring back the grasses, to bring back the animals for next time. So he thought ahead. There was none of this, wow, we just took out everything that could be eaten, and hopefully when we come back, there was that whole process of what went through, you basically knew it was going to be there next time. If there wasn't enough this time, you ensured that you kept it for next time. Because your management processes work in such a way that it sustains you. And even when things went wrong in Pitumba and it was a dust storm, the one place that had water still was the gully because they sustained that swamp, they kept it running, they kept the plants alive and they worked the edges and they looked after the area. 
get dark, but this is Calicoma cerealifolia, one of my favourite plants. It's used for toilet paper leaf, hey? Now, I have to call it Calicoma cerealifolia because I was on the flats once before, and I said black bottle, which is the common name in the mountains, and I said, oh, you rub it on your bottom, and they went, that would hurt. And it's very soft. Turns out the one down here is a bit harsher. It's a bit like a Call it Pelicama Sarafolia. Sounds harsh, but it's soft and hairy. Very nice. <laughs> a really good plant. When you go bush and you see that, you know, you're in a wet area. You know that that leaf can be used to your bottom. You know that the stalk can be used as a spear because it's soft timber. You know that the resin out of it can be done for skins. You know by looking around that there's lots of them, there's lots of water. So you can use it. Calicoma serratifolia is a good reader for me of when countries in a good or a bad state. Very dry at the moment when the water tables down. <coughs> tea tree. Tea tree was used for oil, medicines, but it was also used how you can adapt. Our society has changed. I'm not going to try and get to all the three gear off, throw on a lap lap, and we all go out there and do dance, okay? Uncle Ronnie said to me once that his mum used to use that to sweep. He used to get the stringy bark, wrap it around, and used it. The good thing about these plants, at the end of their life cycle, they would break down. They would go back to the earth and break down, which is a problem with our wastage these days, that we use stuff that does not break down. One of the key things that I look at, I'm a really horrendous single-use guy. Drives people mad. I have more bottles in my pantry than I have food because I don't want to get another plastic thing in there or something that I can't use. Every time I drop a jar, I almost cry because I want to look after the country. I want stuff that can be used. I know now that the TV shows that my glass is also a bit in the dust, so I'm probably going back to the park soon, but it's right. <laughs> so, this is the bottom of the gully. So, this is what happens when we don't think about our wastage and what happens with everything that comes through our process. This is a barramy trap. I've just got it cleaned out after two years. It's next to our picnic area. It gets full of hamburger rubbish, food rubbish, charcoals out of some random little fire thing, plastic bottles. It fills with everything imaginable. And this is our concept sometimes of how we Manage wastage. Wow, we built an environmentally friendly barramy trap. It does work, except the problem is that everything in there does not break down. There's silt running in there, so I get soil coming out of gardens. People again don't think and don't look at that runoff process. As an Aboriginal man, I was taught to think differently. I was taught not to build barramy traps. Anything I was taught was how to build fish traps to get our fish and was out of the rocks. So I think as a society, we've got to start thinking, how do we not go to the tip? We didn't have a garbage night. We didn't get to put three different coloured bins out, like I do each week and get excited because my yellow one's really full. <laughs> and wow, look at me. I went on a course with a lady who got herself down to once every three months. It just inspired me. I think I'm useless. I think I'm all right. This woman's three months and she doesn't put bins out. I want to get to a point where maybe I can't put my bin out because I've got my processes reduced to such a sense that I have zero waste. And then when I eat, that I'm not destroying half the planet because of the fact that I'm looking at a way to satisfy me. I was brought up to learn in the circle. So, so I always struggled in this sort of room because I had my back to people. I just didn't cope with it because everybody was inclusive. You're all in this together. So when I do my teaching at TAFE and with schools, I always do the circle, because we're all in that one circle together. We've got to get away from the fact that we're independent, that we have fences, that we all have our back to each other. We've got to learn to sit together in a circle. We've got to move forward so I don't have to have barramy tracks anymore. Key to success. This is Katoomba High School. I was um, in Albury getting an Academy Award white thing, and um, what happened was I got a photo from an excited young teacher at the high school. As I said, my mum was a Gadumba born where the Liber walks. 
and due to the practices, we'd actually seen the LIBOR decimated, which culturally means I'm in a bit of trouble. If you know traditional culture, if your animal goes, then, then you go. You've got to care for country. It's a part of the process as we look at what's happening to Aboriginal people. Quite often, it's our country that brings our health, and therefore we need to keep these practices going. This girl sent me this photo. We started a land care group to sport. 60 kids aren't going to sport, so we do land care of sport. And one of the goals of the Durrawal teacher was that the live bird would come back. Last year, the live bird came back. The live bird walked on country, sat there, and We taught the kids, and these kids now are learning. I was excited when I got this photo sitting in Albury to see that little guy come back on country and to feel to be able to walk peacefully because there was health in the soil. The practices we put in and promoted have made this one feel safe. My mum, before she passed away, had a gum tree cut down. And um, I said to my mum, can I have this piece of gum? Because it really reflects where I'm at. So this gum has a long life in it. On the bottom is what looks like a hoof. It looks like I've not gone to the same animal in my backyard. Don't arrest me. Um, it looks like I've taken out some animal and done something wrong. But it's, it's how we quite often treat the entire country is we walk so hard. We put animals and practices through a very hard hoof. Flattening of our earth. I hope we can change. With our wastage, with our usage, that we start to look at a long history of success in land management, we see that in a short time we've, we've really brought, sadly, a lot of destruction to a beautiful land, and I hope we can reverse it. I really hope that this comes that point where this hard wolf becomes a beautiful gum tree that I looked at for thousands of years with my uncle. I say thousands because culturally everything's in a circle. It's all still there. My uncle, my mum, it still belongs and it's still very current. In my language, thank you for giving me a little bit of your time. I, I hope that as we move on as a nation together, that maybe we start looking at the practices, the plants and the animals. I get really offended when we just knock things on the head because they're in the road. I was never taught that. I was taught that everything has a purpose. That we don't just knock something on the head because it's in the road. Or we don't bulldoze a piece of land for our own needs. That we look at the big picture. I hope as we move forward, we look at these practices that have been successful. Aboriginal people don't look at success per se, but they have been successful in this world's eyes for thousands of years. Yalangi, thank you, thank you for your time. How brilliant is that? A keynote speaker who keeps to time. <laughs> it, it was fantastic. Thank you very much, David. Okay, I'll ask the first respondent, um, Margaret Raven, Dr. Margaret Raven from Macquarie University. Uh, she has a uh, fellowship for Indigenous researchers at Macquarie University. And she's previously worked as a research fellow at the Social, sorry, Social Policy Research Centre, uh, and at the University of New at the University of New South Wales. She's a geographer with experience working for Native Title representation bodies, the New Zealand, the Australian rather, sorry, reverting to type, the Australian Human Rights Commission, and the Western Australian Department of uh, Aboriginal Affairs. Her research interests include Indigenous protocols and research and policy development, and spatial analysis of policies, indigenous food security, and the role of indigenous knowledges in biodiversity conservation. Margaret. It's 
So I'll see if I can try and keep to time. <laughs> um, um, I want to acknowledge that I'm on the country of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and, I, um, and that I work on the country of the Watamadigal clan of the Darug Nation. I'd like to acknowledge Gadigal people, others from the Eora Nation and elders from past, present and future who are here today. I extend this acknowledgement to other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to non-Indigenous people who are here today who travel with us in this journey. I'm a Yamaji Noongar woman from Western Australia on my mother's side and Pakia or white person from New Zealand on my father's side and I now live in Sydney. Um, so thank you David for a wonderful presentation um, and drawing our attention to a number of areas. I hope that I can... Um, where, where are you now? There. <laughs> like, where did you go? Um, I hope that I can um, reflect on some of the things that you've um, talked about today. Um, so in the introduction, I must just warn you, though, I'm an academic, so you're going to get a very academic um, response compared to what David presented. Um, in the introduction to geographies of race and food, Rachel Slocum and Aaron Salander state that our continuing engagement with the vexed concept of race is crucial simply because racism is endemic to the global food system in the aftermath of colonialism. The terms in race and racism are terms that I don't particularly like, but we need some kind of term to describe the differences that we perceive and make categories for, and through which systems, including the food system, then become dependent upon. As Slocum and Saldana go on to argue, there are no races, Race names the process of attempting to stabilise continuous populational differences that are entirely contingent on colonial capitalism. In the history of human relationships with Australia and the labelling of ourselves as Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders and Indigenous peoples is relatively new. They're terms we've had to enact to position ourselves, our bodies and our country in relation to colonisation, the welfare state and capitalism. These are processes that have contributed to our removal from country um, in an attempt to create subjects who speak, act and eat like white colonial subjects. As Slocum and Saldana go on to argue, race is more than legal institutional discourse. It's a system of everyday pleasures and fears as well as juggernauts like global warming, grain market speculation, peak oil and their effect on everyone's diets. This event is an opportunity to see the ways that power plays out in the food system and how the wielding of this power has profound impacts for Indigenous peoples and our country. As David said in his presentation, um, with plants, I'm going to have to paraphrase you, I'm sorry, um, they have a breakdown cycle, um, such as uh, toilet paper. So we have toilet paper that can break down. Um, we didn't have a bin night. Um, nothing was wasted, and as a society, we didn't have garbage. The food system influences many aspects of our daily lives and the places we inhabit. As Penelli and Tipa argue in their, in their article, Beyond Foodscapes, Considering Geographies of Indigenous Wellbeing, they say, food, like place, is never a discrete, fixed or bounded phenomenon in space or time. Instead, foodstuffs, instead, foodstuffs and food practices engage people in connection with multiple places, meanings and power relations. And Slocum and Saldana argue with reference to Elspeth Proven, who's an academic here, and Sarah Watmore, that food encompasses all the socio-ecological and affective processes that make the mineral, vegetable and animal into things edible for the human species. It actively shapes life, spatiality and temporality, brings humans together and keeping them apart, imbricating them fully and irrevocably in the profusion of non-human worlds. Our food must come from somewhere, and, when we don't, and what we don't use must go somewhere. Food is our bodily material connection to country. The very acts of producing, consuming, defecating and managing other wastes from food have bodily impacts. They also have environmental impacts for country, for atmosphere, for the biosphere, for animals, for waterways, and so the list goes on. As Heard argues in Knowing Waste towards an inhuman epistemology, waste is an ironic testimonial to a desire to forget. As such, landfills make their appearance on 
and in the landscape as a material enactment of forgetting. Um, and as Davis reminds us, reminds us, as Indigenous people, we didn't need to forget about our rubbish because we didn't have any. As a previous housemate once wanted to spray the word landfill on a household rubbish bin. What a radical act of truth-telling on an everyday and almost mundane basis. This rubbish or waste has to go somewhere. And for the most part, it goes into big holes in the ground to be covered over and to produce byproducts such as leachates that go into the soils and waterways or gases that escape into the atmosphere. So what does it mean to care for country? As David said, it means to look after country. It remains storing it back to native bush. It includes our relationships to animals through moities, and the example David gave was the emu. We don't isolate things. We look for pathways and practices to care. We are custodians. We don't own country. When we sit on country, we look at country. So to consider our own waste on a daily basis is to begin to engage with caring for country. Many of us came to this realisation a long time ago, but it's easy to forget because the waste system was built to help us to forget. While I believe that we all have a level of individual responsibility to reduce our own personal waste, the system needs to change. This also requires a change to production. Modern uh, food production requires large areas of land, um, huge amounts of inputs, and in Australia is based on imported plants and animals. Why is this? During the early years of colonisation, when the supply ships didn't arrive on time, people ate native plants and animals. One of the first cookbooks by Edward Abbott included recipes such as, such as roast wallaby and parrot pie. Many of these went out of fashion in favour of English foods, but Indigenous peoples continue to eat native uh, foods, still do so today, or want to do so. Why are we still using our lands to produce wheat, sheep and beef? David spoke about the hard-hoofed animals and the impacts that they have on our soils. He said, we walk so hard. Surely if we are serious about caring for country, we would remove these and replace them with native plants and animals, which Indigenous peoples cultivated over generations through the use of fire and other technologies. We've introduced, a, we've introduced bok choy, pak choy, kale, soy and other plants for production in Australia but we still have not, with any considerable effort, introduced a native plant to our everyday lives that is not just a herb or spice. Why can't I, for example, go into any shop in Australia and buy warrigal greens? I think it's a combination of discrimination and a lack of political will. There is still a sense in some sectors that Indigenous peoples, or we, are stupid and backwards. Our Indigenous knowledge and cultural practices counts for very little in mainstream sustainability discussions. It's also a lack of political will. If governments really wanted to do something about this, they would have invested money in market research and development to allow for a sui generis market of Australian native foods to develop, but they don't. They'd prefer to spend $48.7 million on commemorating the 250th anniversary of Captain Cook. This event also sought to ask, how can changes in food production address the historical injustices of, of colonialism? But what injustices? And is it correct to consider them as past events? The injustice in the food system are wrought on and in country and in our bodies and are not spatially uniform. The 2012-13 health survey found that 66% of Indigenous Australians aged 15 years and over were overweight or obese. This is compared to Indigenous adults. Uh, Indigenous adults were 1.6 times as likely to be obese as non-Indigenous Australians. Obesity was highest in inner regional areas, 40%, and lowest in remote areas. Additionally, one in five or 20% of Indigenous Australians were living in a household where someone went without food. This is compared to one in 20 or 3.7% people in the non-Indigenous population. Just let that sink in, 20%. And this is worse for those in remote areas. According to the ABS, 31% of Indigenous people in remote areas were living in a household that had run out of food and couldn't afford to buy more. This is compared with 20% for those in non-remote areas. 
Yet those living in remote areas are more likely to have access to customary economies of food in the form of protein, such as bullock, kangaroo or emu. Slocum argues that decisions about what to eat are profoundly central to preserving racial identity, just as choice as emphasised in the neoliberal condemnation of obesity. Both are excuse me, both are biopolitically productive of a population's life. It is difficult for us to maintain our cultures if we cannot eat our traditional foods. To do this, we need access to our country to practice and to maintain customary economies, including those that provide food. Some have argued that the World Health Organised framing of food security does not go far enough in deconstructing the power imbalances in the global food system and that we ought to be aiming for food sovereignty, which is defined as the right of peoples, peoples, the um, S, to healthy and cultural appro culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods and their right to define their own food and agricultural systems. Any proposed changes to the food production system needs to grapple with what the renewed food system will look like and how it will operate for Indigenous peoples, for our lands, our nations and our bodies. If I were a benevolent dictator, I would get rid of the production of wheat, sheep and beef in this country. Our country is not made for the production of these types of food and animals should not be subject to live export. But Indigenous peoples do not need another person dictating to them what ought to be done to their country or to them. However, perhaps one option could be to engage with Indigenous people to find out what they or we want, understand the Indigenous knowledge and customary laws, practices and protocols which currently exist and build the food system up from that. This reminds me, this is similar to what David uh, just mentioned in terms of the, I'm going to pronounce it wrong, Gargari? Gargari um, swamp uh, in Katoomba. However, if it included a market-based approach, and people are beginning to consider this, it could include regionally-based access and benefit-sharing species agreements this would allow for harvesting and production of species that sit across multiple Indigenous nations while enabling the sharing of benefits to these nations. The Nagoya Protocol to the Convention on Biological Diversity allows for this mechanism. While the federal government has signed the protocol, they are yet to ratify it. We need this to ensure that Indigenous peoples won't continue to be ripped off. Even with this, though, inequalities will still exist. Indigenous peoples whose country is covered by a city, a town or a mine site will, will be excluded from this process. Here's the controversy. I think a land tax that creates a future fund for Indigenous peoples may assist. How this is administered and what the land tax, look tax looks like is a matter for discussion. Thank you. We're going to have a lot to talk about in question time. This is really good. Okay, so our second respondent is Cressida Rigney. Rigney, sorry, Cressida. PhD student here at Sydney. Her interests lie in developing native, the native food industry and in particular the relationship between consumers, both commercial and domestic, and producers. Thank you. Thanks, Christine. It's not often people get my last name wrong rather than my first. Cressida's not that easy to deal with. <laughs> um, and firstly, I too would like to acknowledge that I'm visiting on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation today, and I'd like to start by thanking David and Margaret for sharing their professional and personal knowledge with us, and obviously the Sydney Environment Institute and the Food Wastage Fighters Society. You've got the longest name, guys. <laughs> for inviting me to give this brief talk to finish up the formal proceedings today. So when preparing for this talk, I wanted very much to give a closing commentary on some sort of a case study that would attempt to link David's keynote discussion of care for country with ecological management, sustainability practices, and of course, food wastage and waste management more broadly. And initially I felt I was probably trying futilely to bring too many ingredients into one pot, going to do it anyway. 
Um, <laughs> and I remembered a really brilliant talk I went to last year. And the talk was given by an educational organisation called Koori Connections. And it's run by a UN woman, Jess Sinnott, who's doing a whole host of talks this week, actually, including on... I'm, I'm just promoting another talk here. Um, <laughs> including in Warrywood on Thursday night. Um, and she shared a huge amount that day about her personal connection to food and land. And amongst all that plethora of information, she briefly touched on a structure that bridges both built and natural environments which is often known as a midden. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. Admittedly, it's not a topic that's central to my own research, uh, which Christine touched on briefly. I, I'm interested in the developing native food industry and markets and the complexity of the impacts, uh, both current and historical, of colonial governance and society on the acceptance and consumption of native foods and the relationships between the producers and the consumers. Uh, but I still think that Middens is a really appropriate case study to conclude with today. That's what my picture's of, in case you hadn't figured out. So Middens are dotted all around the coastal and river environments of Australia, particularly near estuaries, riverbanks and dunes. And a large number remain really clearly visible to this day. They're labelled by various state governments as relics, which is... Not the best term, perhaps, but does apply an important category of heritage protection, which makes it an offence to interfere with or remove, deface or conceal any site that might be culturally important. It's a site where Aboriginal people from particular areas or passing through that area left the remains of meals or harvesting. Usually these were food remains, but sometimes the remains included tools or other harvesting implements. The size of deposit sites vary depending on how regularly that particular site was used. And some may be close to the surface, others may be giant mounds. And the size of middens can either connote that it was a regularly used spot or that consecutive generations may have utilised that same spot for their waste disposal. It's usually in the best area, somewhere that's attractive, easy to access and close to sheltered or calm water a spot abundant with fish or shellfish. And in some ways, it's a reactionary structure to solve logistical issues, including the weight of shellfish. So if you wanted to transport your harvest, you might need to process that shellfish, take the meat out, and that's much easier to transport it away from the harvesting site. And how does this factor into food wastage? In a way, there are example of a form of food disposal as well as a way to manage the impact of that disposal. In some ways, it's similar to a compost heap. Don't make that a direct comparison, but it's still useful. <laughs> and the act of composting basically processes any food wastage into an accessible nutrient source for surrounding soil. Middens are an effective way of preserving many of the shellfish shells and therefore altering the levels of compaction in the soil layers, giving more space. We were talking earlier about how horse and cloven animals really compact the soil. Um, however, any remaining flesh or perishable food waste will have been broken down in these structures. Shellfish shells, and particularly oyster shells, which are commonly found in these structures, have really high levels of calcium in them. And calcium has an impact on soil properties that alters the microhabitats of the area and can remedy some saline uh, problems. And I know that Margaret wanted to touch on it today but didn't have time. Salinity is one of the biggest problems we're facing with Australian soils. Um, similarly, charcoal from fires and processing fires contributed to the soil environments there. And eventually those middens formed either large mounds or bands of sediment and contributed to the changing formation of landscape. This comment from an interview with Combermary Ranger Clinton Brewer stood out to me when I was researching for this talk. Clinton was talking about a midden in the Burley Heads National Park. That's a very close-up, but... Um, and he was talking about the history of his ancestors' use of the site, saying when they heavily used an area like this for all the lovely resources, they brought their food back, cooked it, ate it, and put it back in a pile to keep the area nice and clean. As part of Indigenous culture is to look after that environment. So the middens demonstrate usage of areas, how long they may have been occupied, and the consumptions patterns to those who came across them. Primarily located at regular fishing spots, the top layer of the pile would indicate to those fishing what patterns of 
what's now fancily termed seasonal species exploitation had occurred, i.e. what was most recently consumed. In theory, the fishers could then choose to use a different species to harvest, therefore the resources would have the time to replenish. It's the cyclical thing that David finished his talk with. It's, it's rather than thinking linear, we're thinking in a cycle. And what this tells us is there's an established pattern of sustainable harvesting, shared resources, and a sense of value for the maintenance of the ecological makeup of the location. So middens reveal dietary patterns and the technology used to hunt and process. They're often rich in oyster or cockle shells, but also may contain animal bones and pollen samples, the remains of charcoal and ash. Occasionally, bird skeletons have been found in midden piles, and that can still demonstrate the season during which these middens were most regularly used. So the bones of shearwaters communicate that the midden may have been used in spring, which is when those birds were harvested during migration. So perhaps the most fascinating aspect of the midden is the midden as a text, as a method of communication through landscape. Of course, landscapes both natural and built have always told people things. Whether we pay attention as we pass by is an entirely different question. The theme for Reconciliation Week 2018 is don't keep history a mystery, learn, share and grow. Many of us in the audience today are migrants to this country and the directive to learn is particularly crucial. Learning goes hand in hand with listening, observing and staying curious, getting out of the city and exploring the landscape, understanding how plants, both native and introduced, grow and how the food they become degrades. So redeveloping a sense of respect for the complexity of both of those processes. As our government continues to largely fail to act on the responsibility to care for land, we must still step up to care for that environment, to learn from the first custodians of this continent and learn for the land itself. Thanks. Thank you.